Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. While the UK has been gripped with local and by-election fever, it went relatively unnoticed that a landmark was passed across the pond. Thursday the 27th of April with Joe Biden's 100th day in, 100th day in office. Uh, and a lot has happened. The vaccine rollout, stimulus package, Mexico border and much more. So rather than doing what everyone else is and grappling with the local election fallouts here... We're going to talk about 100 Days of President Biden. So I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast, Royfield Brown. Welcome, Royfield. Hello. Uh, so for listeners that missed your last couple of appearances, perhaps you could uh, just introduce yourself um, briefly. Sure. So I'm uh, I'm a Brummie who's been lost to uh, the, the great state of California for the last seven years. Um, I spend six months of my year um, in California, maybe three in Ontario, uh, Toronto, then another two in the UK and another one being a, a digital nomad somewhere else. Um, so I've been in San Francisco, the East Bay, um, since 2014, more on than off. Uh, super. Um, and I've just realised, actually, you're the first guest to have a hat-trick of appearances on No Man's Land. So uh, Dr. Corey Clark, who's a social scientist, and John Denham, the former Labour MP, both had two each, but you've now overtaken them with a third. So you are the top friend of the podcast. Oh, well, you know what? Um, what, do, what do they say? But uh, the cream always rises to the top, Steve. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let's get into it. We're here to talk about what's happened across the pond. And obviously you, uh, with your Mid-Atlantic Conversations podcast, I occasionally uh, visit on, um, talk about these things often. Um, now, I suspect quite a few listeners in the UK in particular are a bit like me. And what I mean, what I mean by that is that when the presidential election happened, and then we had the Georgia runoff Senate elections. I took a bit of a, a sigh of relief and took a bit of a break from following American politics closely as I normally would. Um, so I wanted to kick off by asking you, what stood out for you in the first 100 days of Biden? What would you point someone to who's, who's like me, been a bit lazy about keeping up with the news? Well, he's, he's popular. Um, there's no two ways about it. His approval ratings are um, quite high, um, depending on which poll you look at. It's anywhere between 54%, that's the lowest, up to just under 60%. And that is remarkable. Generally, uh, when presidents first come into office, they, they get a bit of a bounce. Even a small amount of people that didn't vote for them, you know, kind of go, you know what, I wish them luck. Uh, it's a new broom, all of that. I, I kind of get behind them. But this has been even more remarkable, considering how partisan politics have become in America, how divided things actually are. For him to have, on average, you know, 54 55% of approval um, is utterly stunning, and 40% disapproval. So there's a certain amount of Americans kind of in the middle, and I think um, those Americans that are somewhat in the middle uh, are, are because they've forgotten that there's even a new president because um, he's not on everyone's TV every day. He's not 
commanding headlines. He's just quietly getting on and doing his job. So people have even forgotten that there's a new president. So that's encouraging for Biden. Um, and do you think I should infer from that that the things he's been doing, the kind of policy things, have been relatively popular? So the ones that come to mind for me are the, the big stimulus package, which was often compared to the lack of it in, um, in the UK, or um, you know, joining the field again on climate change. Are things like that proving popular? Or do you think it's more just a sense of, of Biden the man being the sort of right man for America right now? No, the American Rescue Plan um, is incredibly popular. Dare I say it, um, if you can give people money, generally it makes people happy. Um, so it is incredibly popular. Um, he's been able to get that through Congress and, and, and the Senate um, relatively easily. Um, and this is kind of in paradox, in, you know, paradoxically compared to, let's say, Obama who tried various uh, economic stimulus uh, plans, and there was always this worry that um, he was going to crash the economy, and, and ditto Clinton to a much smaller, smaller degree. Um, the markets don't seem to be as worried about the fact that um, America is piling up this level of debt. But no, um, incredibly popular uh, packages. Um, also, um, the infrastructure bill, um, you know, which is all kind of like part of this, that people see this very much as um, a way of resetting uh, the American economy. That, well, that is, that is, that sounds positive. And maybe that's part of the kind of trend we're seeing, certainly in the UK as well, when it comes to a sort of leftward shift in terms of the state's role in the economy. Uh, and all and all that. Um, an issue that might have been, or certainly has been reported as a bit stickier for Biden, has been the Mexico border, which I think um, people will recall from uh, the Trump administration and some of the horrible scenes of some children in cages and so forth. What's happened with that, and, and has he has Biden handled that well? In a nutshell, he he hasn't. But the the media, the press, have given him some up of a pass on this. It was one of the things which he said he wanted to address in his uh, first 100 days. It's proven to be a little bit more intractable uh, of an issue. Um, but he's not really... Uh, his feet haven't been held to the fire re regarding regarding the kind of the border issue. Um, since he came to power, there has been um, a swelling uh, resurgence of... Uh, border migration or people applying so there is pressure on, on that southern border but the the long and short of it is this is probably his biggest um policy um black mark to date but i think people are saying well you've been here for uh, just for three months three and a bit months um we're giving you a slight pass on it for now but has he been able to radically change things from what the Trump administration did? Uh, no. And there's actually more people at the border. Yeah. Well, that, that's sad to hear. And um, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I know some of these issues just are very hard to do anything about, either because the politics is just intractable or because the actual issue is very intractable. And it sounds like this border situation might be something that falls a bit into that camp. Mm. You know, the one of the if you're if America is going to really um, 
fix this border issue, one of the things it needs to do is to be in partnership with the countries where the migrants are coming from, where these economic refugees are coming from. You know, people think it's Mexico. It's not just Mexico. It is Guatemala. It's Honduras. It's these um, much poorer countries in, in Southern America, sorry, in Central America, who are walking um, through Mexico to get to the US border. One, one of the things the Biden administration wants to do is to try and alleviate the reasons why people want to leave those countries in the first place. It's one of the things that the Trump administration never, never wanted to do. Now, if, you, if that's one of your stated aims, the fact of the matter is, is that you're not going to alleviate the border crisis immediately. You know, it needs to be a twin-track approach. You need to um, help social services and economic development in those countries that people don't want to leave, whilst immediately dealing with the border crisis. So, you know, I think a fair, fair assessment would be let's give them 12 months to see exactly uh, what they're doing on the border, but then also to try and help those uh, poor Central American states so that people don't have to uh, leave. I also want to ask you about Kamala Harris, because we've had 100 days of the first woman and first person of um, colour vice president. Um, uh, so how, how do you think uh, she is getting on? Um, she's been a little bit invisible, just like Uncle Joe, really. Um, she just... Um, I think the thing where I really noticed her was uh, they're combating the kind of vaccine hesitancy amongst African-Americans, amongst black Americans. She used her status as the first African-American vice president uh, to really put a face to that campaign because there is a certain amount of hesitancy about some sections of the African-American community to, to take the vaccine. So she, along with some African-American mayors and some celebrities, put their face to a campaign saying, you know, um, folks, uh, we, we need to do this type of thing. But other than that, she's been pretty, pretty much in the background. She she does have um, a very important role, other than just being the vice president, is that she's the president of the Senate. And it's actually her which gives the um, the casting vote, uh, because the Senate is actually a 50-50 tie. So it's the vice president, who's the president of the Senate, who then um, basically gives the Democrats one extra vote so legislation can be passed through it. So she's been busy, but she's not exactly been in people's uh, faces at all. This administration is so different from the Trump one. The Trump one was constant, constantly in the news cycle, constantly uh, dominating it, whether it was through... Um, policy pronouncements which weren't properly thought through, through to scandal, through to uh, maladministration, just whatever, you know. This administration is much, much, much more quiet and sombre, sober, and just kind of gets on and, and does its thing. So that sounds like a deliberate choice, perhaps, from the administration. Um, but would you like to see the vice president a bit more prominently um, sort of driving the news agenda? I'm going to say no. I think America has had enough of a high-octane presidency. Um, 
and, and we've seen this through. Um, so Donald Trump not being on Twitter. Twitter has been detoxified. Fox News's uh, viewing figures have gone down. So have MSNBC. All the obvious metrics of people consuming the news have actually gone down. But it's made for much a much calmer uh, political environment. And I think that's a good thing. I think America needs to reset back to normal. And the normal position for Americans wasn't that every day on their TV screens they saw the president. That was very abnormal. The last four years have been abnormal. So this is a reset back to the old normal. Um, and to kind of underline that, uh, Biden giving his first uh, press conference was historically uh, the longest in, in living memory. Um, he only did it a couple of weeks before his 100 days. You know, he, he he's not showboating. He's very quietly getting on and, and governing and ditto uh, Kamala Harris. That does seem then like a deliberate strategy and perhaps the right one. Um, you've actually segued nicely into my next question. So I recall during the campaign... And I believe after he was elected as president, Biden talking about bringing America back together. And I think the phrase he used was taking the temperature down on the debate. So from what you were just saying, it sounds like they've been reasonably successful at doing that. Is, is, is your sense of America being a bit less at war with itself at the moment? Um, in part, but the bipartisan politics is still there. You know, that logjam has not been broken. And what the Democrats have been able to do, in large part, is to watch the um, the Republicans fight, fight like rats in a bag. So um, Liz Cheney um, has had a somewhat spectacular fallout from the rest of the Republican establishment uh, because she says, um, as we all kind of know, that the last election was a, the result was a, a legitimate victory for Joe Biden. And um, the Republican hierarchy, uh, though they agree with her in, in private, um, do, do not believe that they can admit this to, to the base. So there's an existential fight going on in the, Repub in, in the Republican Party for its soul. And it appears that Donald Trump um, is winning that fight, that Trumpism will, will live on. This has created somewhat of a vacuum for the Democrats, uh, just to just to to just quietly get on and to do do their thing and have a relatively progressive agenda. You know, throwing $1.9 trillion at um, rescuing the American economy after the Trump uh, stimulus of last year. The, the, these are, as you said, um, very uh, leftward-leaning um, interventionist uh, state policies. And they're incredibly popular... And uh, the Republicans' uh, opposition to it has been somewhat muted. It's a case of, well, let's not spend $1.9 trillion. It, You know, it's uh, some, some division of that less as opposed to outright opposition in large part because um, they're fighting over their um, ideological soul. That is interesting. And it does sound like a change from uh, the Republican Party when Obama was president that seemed to be saying, you know, we're not going to work with you on anything. And now maybe they're being forced to accept some of the Democrat program, at least in... Oh, don't get me wrong. All, all of a sudden, um, Mitch McConnell 
et al. are saying that these are uh, bank-busting nation, bankrupting sums sums of money. Um, where, when Trump had his uh, very stimulus bills, um, they weren't weren't saying that. So it, rhetorically, they've gone back to the old position, but. These po- these policies are wildly popular, you know. Um, Trump never got anywhere near fifty percent approval in all of his uh, four years in power. And Biden's at fifty four percent, and that's the lowest pegging. So they they're incredibly popular, and a lot of their opposition is purely rhetorical. But no Republican uh, worth their salt in the Senate is saying, "I, I want to work." Uh, Overtly, I want to work with the Biden administration, though more moderate Republicans like Mitt Romney's, etc., actually um, are. So, if America is perhaps not as divided on economic um, and sort of bread and butter issues, is it, is it still divided on the kind of identity politics issues? Because you know the the, the conversation we've often had on this podcast is whether. Uh, we've sort of imported that over here across the pond. Do you think, is there any sign of that getting better? Or is that still as fraught as ever? I think it's, it's really, it's really difficult to actually say. My gut is to say, actually, yes, things, the temperature has gone down in the room because Trump isn't there. Um, and as I said, uh, viewing figures for Fox News have gone down. Uh, viewing figures for One America have gone up. And there's another kind of right-wing TV network whose name just escapes me at the moment. But there seems to be less vitriol and invective flying around. But identity politics is something which um, is the new cultural and political crux that um, we have, um, you know, we still live in the shadow of George Floyd, and the uh, we obviously had the the verdict uh, the other day, but there still is a divide between people who say, well, of course there is institutional and systemic uh, racism which people of colour uh, face, and and that uh, reforming the police is a key part of that. And it's also one of the things which Biden said he would do in his first 100 days. They would have a special c- police commission. It's one of the things which he hasn't got round to doing yet. Um, and then there are people that say, no, you know, Lord, law and order is law and order. Uh, America is uh, the land of, of milk and honey and equality for all. So, so this, you know, there still is um, people who deny that uh, structurally some people in America have a harder time of it than others and will tell you that uh, the, the statistics on police shooting of uh, men of men of colour um, doesn't say that you're more likely to, to die at the hands of the police, etc., etc. So these cultural issues are, are still there. And, and so much so that in the last month, people have been arguing about Mr Potato Head and Dr Seuss, Dr Seuss, um, is seen as um, not really fit for 2021, and right-wing Republicans are throwing their hands up with uh, um, with shock and horror, you know, type of thing. That uh, Dr. Seuss is the thin end of the wedge. They, they come for Dr. Seuss today, and tomorrow they'll come for your for your flag and your gun. Yeah, yeah, a bit, a, a sort of a dog whistle sort of situation where they're absolutely. Um, 
on the with with justice, well, justice in in sense of the law being done with the Derek Chauvin verdict. Do you think? Well, how was your? How do you read the reaction to that? And obviously, Biden made made statements about. It. Do you, do you think that's a moment that America was getting divided about, or was it? Uh, it was an element of closure and possibility to move forward. I think it's one of relief. It was one of relief. Uh, many black folks, basically, even though we were kind of all abreast of the deliberations, still didn't believe that the verdict would be uh, guilty on all counts because they'd seen that with Rodney King. They've seen it with numerous trials since. That it is overwhelming evidence. It doesn't really matter. Somehow the police or the policeman seem, seems to uh, wriggle, wriggle away. For me, the most significant thing, and this is where there is real a real opportune moment, was the fact that so many policemen went onto that witness stand and actually said, no, what was done was wrong, that he shouldn't have lent on this guy's neck for some nine-plus minutes. And they said it repeatedly. They said this wasn't standard uh, restraining practice, etc., etc. One of the things which um, the U.S. police... Uh, system really suffers from is um, the the inwardness that they that, that, that they have if there's any kind of um, accusation of impropriety that, that basically that blue wall becomes incredibly solid there, there is literally a kind of like police infallibility is kind of built into the, the, the American system. Um, you, you speak to the average Joe on the street and they'll always give the police uh, the benefit of the doubt if a policeman or a policewoman discharges their weapon and the amount of convictions that uh, policemen, uh, police women go through, law enforcement officers go through, is ridiculously low. They're, ca- they're ca- called upon court charges quite often, but hardly ever go down. It's not like Germany, where um, if a policeman kills somebody, you know, they, they're just put on trial as, as, literally as a civilian. So there's these institutional pressures which have held the police to not be accountable. And then this is kind of also reinforced by the DA system. So you can, your public prosecutor or district attorney in America, they, um, they basically are elected um, and invariably they say they're going to be tougher on crime than the person before. So you get lots of police unions that then pay their money. For me... Uh, pay the money for them then to run. So for me, the most significant thing about George Floyd and the trial was that police silence was cracked. Policemen actually spoke and didn't defend Chauvin. They didn't at all. And it was one of the things which we noticed um, immediately in the aftermath of George Floyd's death that the police chief in Minneapolis said, this is wrong. You know, when, before charges were even put to Sharp, and he said, no, this is wrong. And other police chiefs around America also said. So I think there is an appetite for change, for some level of oversight. And as I said, um, Biden, is one of the things he said he wanted to do in his first 100 days, he hasn't done it yet. 
But in his uh, victory speech, he did call out to African-Americans and, and say that things have to change. And I believe there is a historic... Uh, we're in, living through a historic time where that change can actually happen. One of the problems, though, is that um, defund the police um, is a clumsy slogan. So if you're marching to say, to shout defund the police is a very easy and catchy thing to say. But it means that people on the right have been able to say, what, we're going to abolish the police? And, of course, defund the police actually doesn't mean uh, we're going to abolish the police. But it means that uh, debate has been skewed that way. And actually what defund the police means is maybe use some of the money which... uh, cities, counties, states put towards law enforcement for other preventative measures, which gets the roots of of crime, and which is fundamentally nearly always poverty, you know. So, um, but we, we're living through unprecedented times where Americans for the first time are actually looking at the police as a service and saying, have we militarized them too much? Are they accountable? How can we make them accountable? And maybe we actually need to uh, downsize uh, the size of law enforcement in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a particular area where people from the UK and Europe look at America and think, how on earth does this sort of continue? So maybe it's an area to watch and, and hopefully Biden and his administration can seize what, what with what you describe sounds like a an opportunity in time, sort of a historic moment where there might be possibility for reform. Um, but I suppose we'll believe it when we see it, because I know there's lots of forces that make that, as you described, very tricky. Mm. No, it's, it's just to say as well that any nationwide policy regarding the police is going to be tricky because that's not the way policing is done in the States. You know, it similar to the UK, it's done on, on a local level. So... But what Biden can do is set the the mood music. Um, So we're going to talk about uh, local government briefly in a minute. But I just want to wind back um, and talk about the Republican Party a bit. You alluded to this before um, in a sort of post-Trump, well, post-Trump for now world, um, what sort of becomes of them. Um, And the sort of pundit will set this up as, will they go back to kind of being like the old Republican Party that sort of respected the rule of law and all these norms of politics? Or, as seems to be happening, will they go uh, the way of digging in and being a, a Trump party? Do you, what have you made on the made of their sort of reaction post-President um, Biden's inauguration? And uh, is there any sign of a return to sanity or is that completely fanciful? What the Republican Party is struggling doing is uh, telling people, telling its supporters, telling its base hard truths. Um, the Republican base, no, let, 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 let's not say the Republican base. There is a base of people who voted for Donald Trump who are loyal to Donald Trump. And it's a hard and fast base. Um, not all of them are historically uh, Republican voters, but they are populists. They believe in relatively simple measures for complex uh, issues. This is exactly what Trump personified. China bad, let's pull out of uh, uh, the Pacific, Trans-Pacific uh, Treaty. You know, 
climate climate accord that's all just too too complex let's just go pull out of that etc uh, etc et what the republican uh, establishment is utterly struggling with is being able to tell that trumpian base that the result of the last election was legitimate and the and the problem is inherent in the whole system of how America elects its senators and, and congressmen. So the primary system, so that is where somebody says, well, I would like to be a congressman or a senator or whatever. That, that, that open system of you then um, going and knocking on doors, fundraising, etc., just so you can be a, a candidate for the Republican Party. The people that vote in that primary system are diehard politicos and they are not the wider electorate's norm in terms of who votes for that party. So the intra-vote, the primary vote, gets um, people who are to the right of the norm of all Republican voters and also to the left generally, of all Democratic voters. And the Republican Party is being skewered by this. So you have this Trump base, which is to the right of many establishment Republicans. And because they are worried about being primaried, that means if you're an established congressman and you want to be elected in 2022 that basically somebody else will come up and run against you who's more populist, they, they bend towards more populist uh, rhetoric, whether they actually believe in it or not. And this is reflected by the Republican leadership that literally cannot say the results of the election were valid. There were over 60 um, different court cases brought against various uh, cities and jurisdictions uh, questioning the, the, whether the poll was legitimate. All of them were thrown out by one, and even the one was a case of how close the observers actually get to and the ballots were being counted. They can't say this because they're worried about upsetting their voting base, the most diehard of supporters. So what the Republicans are doing is looking inward as opposed to trying to be expansive and saying, why is it that we had this record vote for Joe Biden? They're still trying to um, appease people who fundamentally and erroneously believe that the election um, was false. So... Where this takes Ely's Cheney's and stuff, and to show you how disingenuous this whole thing is, when we have public votes of Republican congressmen, um, as we had just after the storming of the Capitol in July 6th, um, they uniformly vote as a party block. I think there's only one, possibly two, congressmen who voted um, that Trump should be impeached. Um, Liz Cheney was one of those congressmen who said that Trump should be impeached. But then when they had a secret ballot as to whether she should keep her position, they overwhelmingly said she should keep her position because it was a secret ballot. You know, so there is uh, the truth that they hold and the truth that they hide. Uh, and that is really self-evident uh, with the Republican Party.
Um, I think if you're a betting person right here and now, you would say that 2022 is going to see um, a slate of populist Republicans uh, returned to Congress and some populist senators. Whether Congress will flip and be Republican majority, um, historical trends will tell you that it should do, and redistricting and gerrymandering pushes it also in that direction. But I, I don't know. Nobody knows what, what, what Trump will do between now and then, which could actually mean that um, he excites more Democrats to vote than Republicans. Because that's the thing about Donald Trump. He gets Republicans out to vote, but he gets more people out to vote in opposition to him. So if there's a whiff of Trump around the Republican Party in 2022, and it's hard to see why there wouldn't be, because he's going to have more um, extreme uh, representatives, um, it it could well be that uh, the Democrats actually can mobilise against that because they're like, look, you know, the country's doing well, we're bouncing back from COVID, Uh, America is rebuilding itself, do you want to go back to the old divisive politics? Doesn't sound as a great deal of hope for a more sane Republican party anytime soon. It sounds a bit like they've created a monster they can't control. But um, uh, So that's gloomy, but but the good thing is we have uh, Democrats in power at least in Washington. Um, so that brings me on slightly to the other topic I want to talk to you about, which is around local government in the US and the UK. So I know that you've, of course, lived on both sides and followed politics on both sides. And it's often said about us in the UK that we're particularly centralised and all we seem to care about is Westminster, um, London politics. Obviously, it's a little bit different now with devolved uh, nations. And actually, the Hartlepool... Uh, the coverage of the Hartlepool by-election this week is slightly uh, telling of that, but all we're talking about is Hartlepool and not the very many other elections for metro mayors and local council. Um, so I just want to ask you, what what are your reflections of having sort of experienced local government and local politics in the US and the UK? How, how do you think they compare? It really is chalk and cheese. Um, local politics is much more vibrant and pressing an issue here. There's always an election. A friend of mine in Oakland um, was elected to be a transport director. So that's the local bus company. Um, She's one of the, I forget how many directors there are. There's a few, maybe 15, something or another. And these are lay people. So it's not a uh, a party political post, but you know, if you don't run for it being a Republican or a Democrat, but people can kind of see it in your um, in your manifesto, which way you lean, and um, you know, and she was voted to be one of these transport directors. So there are many more elections here. I personally think there are too many. You know, you elect uh, your local judges, you you elect everything here. So there's always an election. However. Um, municipalities are much more powerful here than they are in in the UK. I forget exactly what the figure is in the UK, but it's something like only 30% of uh, revenues can be derived locally by by city and count, city councils, town councils, uh, county councils, etc. That the vast majority of the money actually comes from central government. And uh, so so 
the way that this, the way that um, civic governance is orient, orientated here is the correct way. You know, the mayor of Oakland or the mayor of San Francisco, um, they, these are positions with real political power. So I saw London Breed speak, who is the, the mayor of San Francisco. Invariably, it's at a fundraiser, which is uh, the, the one kind of abomination. Well, there's, there are a few abominations about American politics, but the amount of money uh, that people need to always be canvassing to run definitely leads the moat to be, um, dare I say, the kind of the footstool of, of business, uh, big business all the time. But she has real power. She she's a real person, and it's not just you know Mayor Sadiq Khan for much for all of his high profile. Fundamentally, what can he do? He can um, put prices up or down in public transport. That's his biggest kind of, you know, political lever. Um, it's much more widespread uh, here, the power of, of local uh, municipalities. And there's a real sense of uh, local participation. As I say, they elect everything here. When they say down to dog catcher, they're, they're not joking. You know, it, 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 you know, it almost feels like there are too many elections. But cities can have an independent policy um, so um, away from uh, national government. So you'll have things like uh, sanctuary cities, cities that say that they are, that if you find yourself um, in America, in, uh, specifically in this city, and you don't have the right papers, you're kind of safe. You know, these would be liberal cities, invariably are on the West Coast, but they can have policies like this at variance to wider national uh, politics. It also uh, goes up to the state level as well, where you can have decriminalization of marijuana, of course, as well. So in California, Washington State, Oregon, um, Colorado, just for off the top of my head, it's totally illegal to smoke cannabis because, again, there's a certain level of decentralised uh, policy away from um, from national policy as well. So um, local politics is, is alive and kicking in the United States, and, and it's one of the many things which we need to get sorted in the UK so that we can really unleash um, the towns in the Midlands and the North kind of economically, if we can have, you know, get them away from government central planning. Yeah, absolutely right. And now you're, you're, you're absolutely right to point out that local government in this country is rather strapped for cash and doesn't have that much power to raise its own cash. Um, all that much power just has to do much at all. Um, but it is a very interesting comparison. On the politics side of things, one thing that sort of struck me in the US, I think it's, it's sort of a sort of um, a truism, is that the Republicans seem to do a lot better in these down ballot election, elections. Um, and they do necessarily on the national stage. Uh, is, is that still holding true? Um, uh, and is there any sign of that changing? You mentioned things like gerrymandering and the rest of it, which is probably part of the, the story. But what do you think are the, the sort of prospects for in, in, in that space? In the last election, the Republicans did better down ballot than they did at the very top of the ballot, i.e. Um, more people voted for congressmen uh, senators, state senators, state congressmen on the Republican ticket, and that actually did for Trump. And it's one of those uh, 
uh, one of those uh, secrets that, that one of those truths, sorry, that the Republican Party um, really should latch on to and realise that actually Trump it is actually a losing candidate. You know, in two elections, his opponents have got more votes than him. But he's so beloved of their base, as I kind of said before, that that truth uh, doesn't really get publicised enough. Um, I think on a, on a local level, um, re- re- Republican politics and Republican politicians uh, do well regionally. Um, but they are completely wiped out, as are, to be fair, Democrats um, in in other regions. So... If you look at a map of um, American cities, large cities, and how they vote in those districts, they're always blue. They're always, they're always Democrat. You know, to find a Republican uh, in New York, um, a Republican representative in the city of New York is pretty hard. Ditto in Oakland or San Francisco. But it's in, in, in rural America, in suburban America, where the Re- Republicans rule the roost. So they, the Republican Party, though, is um, really now identified with white America. And if it is to survive, it needs to um, break out of that and to reinvent itself or embrace other hyphenated Americans. Uh, because otherwise um, it will be led down a road to uh, demographic uh, oblivion. However, it's got a few election cycles to uh, to fix that. You know, the election cycles here come around so fast and so quick. It is every two years there's a, a nationwide poll of some sort. So um, it can fight over its soul for another couple of election cycles. But um, really, by, let's say, 2026, uh, I think there will be a new Republican um, alliance. And uh, and that will be something to be reckoned with. Well, Royfield, as ever, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, uh, if listeners want to find you on social media or any of your other excellent podcasts, where should they have a look? really spend a lot of my time on Clubhouse now. So if you're on Clubhouse, the new social media network on uh, on smartphones, I'm, I'm kind of there, and quite simply, I'm just Royfield. I am on Twitter, but I don't really uh, pontificate about politics on on Twitter. But I'm just Royfield at everything. So if Instagram, I'm Royfield. Facebook, I'm Royfield. Clubhouse, I'm Royfield. And that is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. So R-O-I for India, F-I-E-L-D. And that's where you'll find me. Well, I will, I will post a, uh, a link on, um, on the Medium page to the Clubhouse stuff. And uh, hopefully look forward to joining you maybe sometime soon again for an Atlantic pod or something similar. Look, uh, listen, mate, look forward to it. You're always the, the voice of... Uh, of uh, of reason, you know, in, in the middle of debate, Steve. So uh, we, we, we love it when you come on and uh, we'll have you back at a drop fat whenever. Well, I do, I do try my best. Um, anyway, for now, um, this has been the No Man's Land podcast. Thank you all for listening. Do retweet, share, give us reviews, all those good things. Uh, and goodbye. <laughs>